please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. As I mentioned earlier, we are celebrating Advent, meaning arrival, uh, coming from a Greek word meaning coming, coming of Jesus. It's a, the fact is that we're not just wanting his first coming, of course we do, we've had that, but now as a church we are awaiting his second coming and we're longing for that. And so often, this is really loud, does everyone else agree with that? Okay, I just lowered it. Oh, good. Hey, at the new building, that'll be at the back, so that'll be really nice, so he can, anyway. We are working through a series, often we'll look at prophets from the Old Testament looking for Jesus' initial coming. Uh, We've looked at Isaiah in years past, or we've looked at songs from Luke praising that Jesus has finally come, and he's he's here. This year, as I mentioned last week, we are looking at Psalms of David where David expresses a waiting, a longing for the Messiah, uh, for God's presence. And and Psalms are fitting because uh, Calvin calls Psalms a a mirror. That when you look, when you read the Psalms, every emotion is expressed right before you. They drag you into praise, but to lament, to, to seeing many sides of your emotions, and even causing you to experience them before your very eyes and before the Lord. And so the hope this morning in this series is that we will learn to wait as we go through each of the weeks of Advent well. Learning to wait for the Lord. Last week we talked about waiting with patience or waiting with intensity. This morning we're going to look at waiting with confidence. Shane will preach next week, I believe, on waiting for the King, Psalm 110. And then the final psalm will be Psalm 8, waiting with celebration. So as we are in this season of waiting, we can do so for God's glory. So please join me as we look at Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that as we wait for you, 
You've sent your spirit. We have the first fruits of redemption. And this morning at this worship service, you have promised to be present. And I pray that during the preaching of this word, during communion, during all these elements, that you would not only be glorified, but that you'd be opening up the eyes of, of the hearts of your children here. And I pray if there's anyone here, Lord, who does not know you, that even this very morning, you might open their eyes to first believing in you and having new life in you, Jesus. Amen. Um, the movie City Slickers. It's a good movie. Uh, Billy Crystal is Mitch, who's got a great marriage, good kids, good job, but something's kind of missing from his life. So he convinces his two other friends to head out to the dude ranch and go on a cattle drive with Curly, played by Jack Palance. And this, is, this two weeks is going to change their life, they hope. And it, apparently it does, at least for the box office. Um, and there's that famous scene where Jack Palance, you know, Curly, is up on his horse, you know, just a stereotypical awesome cowboy, square jaw, cigarette hanging out the corner of the mouth. And he's, there's talking philosophy, which he hadn't been talking the entire, you know, he's barely said any words. And Chris, Billy Crystal's character, Mitch, starts to ask him about his life. And finally, Jack says, you want to know the secret, or Curly, you want to know the secret of life? Yeah, yeah. And he holds up his hand, right, like this. It's this. What, your finger? No. One thing. And he leans forward. What? You, your whole life has to be about one thing. And he basically goes on to explain that any time you're trying to live your life with many different things, it's going to unravel. He chastises, he chastises Mitch. He says, you city slickers, you come out here and you try to find in two weeks how to untie the knot you've been tying up for 50 weeks, and it won't work. No, you need to make your whole life about one thing. Now, that's a great message. Of course, what he says then is it can be anything. I think there's like a calf that Curly fall, or Mitch falls in love with later. We don't go there. But what we would say and what scriptures teach and what David's getting at is all of us, you know, we talk about Christmas season and, and, and you know, it's supposed to be joyful and, and beautiful, but yet family and, and other kinds of mourning comes in. The reality is we are all seeking life in a, a million different directions. Right? We're looking for, for life and, and not, not even in wrong things. Maybe this family gathering will finally bring me the peace I've always wanted. Maybe we'll, we'll reconcile. Maybe it's the gift you want or the gift you want to give. Whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, you're wasting your time. Now, that's a tricky message, but that's what David is teaching us. He's saying, look, there's one thing that will bring you the peace, the life that you want, and that's Jesus. And we see that in the verse. Um, one thing I have asked of the Lord, one thing I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The question that we're asking, I'm asking you this Advent season is what are you longing for? I mean, what is it you hope in? Are you even aware of the way you personally pursue the things you pursue? And where does Jesus fit into that? Where does his coming, again, fit into that? Where does the future glory of God fit into your current longing? And so we're going to look at that and unpack that. But I want to set the stage to remind you that David is in the wilderness, right? David has been told by Jonathan that Saul wants to kill him. David has fled 
the courts of Saul, and he's gone to the cave, and he's, he's gathered people to him. He's got his stronghold, but he's waiting. So he's been anointed as king, but he's waiting for his final coronation. And that really is a picture of where the church is, right? We are people, if you are in Christ, Paul tells us, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You've been made into a new creation. You have the first fruits, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, right? And yet, when you look at your life, there's a lot of problems. There's enemies all around, there's issues. And, and theologians call this the already and the not yet, right? And we have both, and that tension exists right in this psalm where David is expressing both his confidence in the Lord, but it's his very confidence that frees him up to actually talk about the negatives or the difficulties or the struggles. And so I'm going to use that as my outline. Ready? It's not that amazing. We're going to talk about the not yet, that is the, the missing, the struggles, the current issues of life. We're going to go to the already, that is what we currently have, and then I just want to spend our last few moments in the process of how we juxtapose or interact between the two. So let's start with the not yet. David has barely mentioned, and, and, and I'll get to it in a moment, verse 1, but he's barely mentioned this, re, this great confidence before he goes into verse 2, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversary and my foes. Now, though he expresses confidence, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though wars rise up against me, yet I will be confident. David is able somehow, because of his confidence in God, He's able to notice the problems of his life, the very real presence of enemies, and he doesn't see that as a negative. I think we're a little different. For me, when things are not going well in my day or my life, things are kind of struggling, that's not when I think confidence in Jesus, right? Don't we tend to measure our spirituality based on how things are going? And it's amazing that David, he's fled Saul, he's gathered a large people group, and, and our, that Saul's army is encamped against him, you would think he might think to himself, you know, did I make a mistake? Is this maybe not the direction I should have gone? And yet he doesn't do that. He actually is aware of the fact that evil is present. Evil exists. Now, I don't know how many of you read through the Psalms. Uh, I find that when I'm reading through them and I come to these passages, I just kind of almost zone out. Do you ever, you know, evildoers and wars and armies encamped against you? I'm and I haven't had that happen in Stillwater yet. You know, it's been a great four, three and a half years. I've yet to see an army encamp against me. Don't try it. But I think we have to actually stop and go, wait, what is he experiencing? What's happening? And, of course, it doesn't take long to start realizing, like, for example, a few weeks ago, the news of Tokyo are doing nuclear bomb drills. Has, did you all know that? They're thinking, any minute, there could be a nuclear bomb. And those children are learning, and they'll grow up, and their story will always be either a bomb actually came, which would be horrific, or I just remember when we had to practice for the nuclear bombs. The president moves an embassy, and all of a sudden, everything's breaking loose, and, and the apocalypse is upon us. Like, there are a lot of major issues in our world, and the media brings it to our doorstep. But I think this passage goes even further. Um, he really begins to talk about the way evil is right in his own presence when he finally, in verse 10, says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me. What is it? That's always puzzled me. 
why does David say that? I, I used to think, maybe I just don't know my scriptures very well, and, and his parents must have not liked him. Uh, we all know that when, when Samuel goes to anoint David, of course he works through the other brothers first, and then, oh yeah, there's this little runt. Maybe that's kind of what's going on. Um, I, don't, I don't think so. By the way, this is a good proof to the David. I think David's the author of the Psalms, because why would later writers add that? You know, David's actually saying, this is a, a serious issue in my life. We know that at the story of the cave of Adullam, when David's gathered the men, his parents and his brothers came for his protection. There was a good relationship. He actually takes them to Moab. Uh, some some um, commentaries theorize that because of his great-grandmother's Ruth's heritage in Moab, that maybe there was even a family connection. They have a good relationship. Or at least they have what we would call cordial, we get together on the holidays, relationship. But I think, and we're going to talk about this more as we go, but I I believe he's able to name actual problems in his life because of the confidence he has in Christ. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I want you to just, I want to ask you the question, are you able to name the evil in your own lives? It seems that a lot of us are afraid to actually admit Our sin, the sins of our family, the sins of our culture, because we we struggle with this American view of Christianity that says, if there are problems, I'm not doing it right. And David is shattering that in this passage. He is saying the confidence is from the Lord. And that very confidence frees me to actually look out at the enemies and name them. Have you done that? Do you name the problems, the struggles? When, when is the last time in a private devotional did you actually acknowledge the fact that the sin in your life is trying to kill you? Do you believe Satan is even real? We just celebrated the 500th anniversary of Luther riding, you know, stamping the 95, however he attached them to the door, nailed them, we would assume. But remember, he's in the castle, he's translating the Bible, and he throws the inkwell at Satan. Whether Satan was actually in that spot or not, we're not sure. And I think someone went by later and added the paint later. So when you go on tour, you can see like what appears to be. But Luther really believed in the presence of evil. Do you? Is your spiritual life even doing anything to make the kingdom of darkness fear you? Or is it sort of like, no, they're, they're fine. Let's, just, let's spend our energies elsewhere. They're just hanging out, loving life. Are we people that, that are able to name the traumas, the difficulties, the struggles in our lives and take those to the feet of Jesus? So, that's what I want you to be thinking about, the not yet. How aware are you of the fact that you are not yet in glory? How bothered are you by that fact? Now, the good news is we get to move to the positive side of it, the already. What makes this psalm so beautiful is the fact that there's David's expressing his love, his joy, his confidence in what God has done and will do for him. And I want you to know that for David, I think the very way he gets to that confidence is his awareness of the difficulty. And I think a very simple test of whether or not you see the struggles and the sins and the darknesses in your world is this. Is Jesus your goal? Is Jesus the answer? Because if money or reputation, or circumstances, or anything else, all good things, 
make you feel like your problems will be solved, then you're not seeing the real problems. If those created things can solve all of your problems, probably you're aiming too low. And there is darkness we have not yet even begun to name. For David, the darkness was so overwhelming, he had one hope, one goal. You see it in verses 3 through 5. Though an army encamp against me, I will not fear. Though war rise against me, I will be confident. And he says in verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And he wants to inquire or meditate in the temple. Very similar to Psalm 73, where the psalmist uh, comes to the sanctuary and that's where his lights come on and he realizes, ah, I've been wayward. Do you long to be in the presence of God? What I love about, you know, when David's, before he's even anointed, God tells Samuel, I have found a man after God's own heart, right? And David, after Saul kicks, well, he flees from Saul. Saul wants to kill him. Remember where he goes? I mean, there's a million places he could have gone. He could have gone straight to the cave. But he goes to Nob. We preached on that a few weeks ago. That is where all of the furnishings of the tabernacle were. That's where the priests were. Remember Ahimelech's there. And David had probably made a practice of every war party he put together going first to the house of the Lord for blessing and then going to war. And that's why when he shows up in this instance, Ahimelech's like, why are you alone? Like, this is not good. This probably means that you're leaving from Saul. I mean, they all knew what was going on behind the scenes. But I think David went there for the very purpose of the blessing of the house of God. Remember the, ble- the bread of presence he took? He knew what he was doing. Oh, do you have any bread? I'm hungry. You only came three miles. I think he longed, as always, for this presence of his father. And it reminds us of Jesus, who when everyone else thought he was lost, Jesus is like, why are you looking for me? I'm in my father's house. Why are you surprised? Does that sound foreign? Is there a part of you that wants to long like that? That wants to go, you know what? I want to rest in the fact that I can run to and be in the presence of my father. What does that look like? The already. That's what we're looking at right now. And so I've been reading and meditating on John 14 trying to understand it for like a decade. And, th- and that's really the way the book of John seems to work for me. Like, it is so pure that it blinds you. And you have to pray and reread and pray and reread and come back. And uh, I've preached through the washing of the feet from John 13 quite a few times. I'll, I'll use that as a lot of illustrations even. But in 14, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. He goes on to say, I'm preparing a place for you. And then he says, and I'm coming back to get you. That is Advent. That is what we're longing for. That's what he promises to do. And you know the way to where I am going. He finishes that line in verse 4. And what, what I love about John is he shows us through the disciples, the apostles that are with Jesus, kind of what we're probably already thinking. And listen to Thomas. Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know how to get there? How can we even know the way? Like, you want to go, Thomas, poor Thomas. 
I'm doubting Thomas. Like, I'm, that's me too. Like, I would have just sat there and let him ask the question and been like, yeah. Right? And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying to you that your life, when it's hidden in Christ, is full. That when you are in him, you will have the very fullness you are after. Let me come back to our passage, and we're going to build on that in a minute. I want to come back to John 14 in a minute. And you have, toward the end of our text, David says this, I believe, after he laments, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He believes that this side of eternity, he will be delivered from his present troubles, whether physically or not, in such a way that he will experience true life. Do you hope for that? Do you even think you need that? Are we even aware of the way our hearts are looking to so many other things for life? And are we aware of the gift we have at Christmas? I mean, it's year-round, it's all the time, but we celebrate it particularly at Christmas, that Jesus has come into your world and said, you are mine. I have come for you. And I will take you home. Now, I would love to just stop there, but I, I want to talk about the process. That's the already. We talked about the not yet. Okay, you have these two extremes. Can we all just finally admit that both are present? I mean, so many Christians want to say, well, if you're living in the not yet and you're struggling, you're not a Christian. And, and, and so you need to act like you're already there, right? I think there's another camp that wants to just say, if you don't always act like you're in misery, you're not being honest. What do you do? What's the, t- what's the tension? And here again, in this psalm, as we look at the process, we find David, I think, reflecting his tension. He starts off, starts off by saying in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And the answer is, the enemies. Like, all around me. That would be a pretty good candidate for fear. Like, those people who want to kill me. But yet, he's saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And as he unpacks this psalm, it's not until verse 7 where all the commentators are kind of like, uh, again, he laments. Remember Psalm 40, he did the same thing. All this positive stuff, and then it's like, what's he say? Look what he says in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And then here's verse 9. Where does this come from? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. In your repentance, I think you're supposed to get so close to that sense that God could turn his face from you. Now, I'm a Calvin. All the people, wait a minute, you can't lose your salvation. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that when I rightly see the evil in my own soul, when I rightly see the troubles stacked against me, and I'm really aware of them, it's going to feel like God could turn from me, even though he promises not to do so. Where is that in the Bible? Romans 7, Romans 8. What what does Paul say at the Romans in the 7? Who will rescue me from basically my sin? Thanks be to Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. That means something to Paul because for a brief moment in his flesh, he maybe felt condemned. 
And all I'm saying is, are we even, are we engaging in the process like David is? Are we crying out to the Lord? Are we exposing our sins before the Lord? Like, have you ever taken out a journal? It's good to learn, like, shorthand. And written down your sins? I mean, no show of hands, because then we don't want to see your journal. But, like, we don't do that. But why don't we do that? Right? Because Jesus says, you're a sinner, and there's real troubles in your life, and yet we act like they don't exist, and that's our version of the gospel. And I think what David is teaching us to do is see the difficulties of life and lament with confidence in what Christ has done and promises to do and has already done and will come and fully do when he returns. So what does that look like? Coming back to John 14. Um, Jesus continues after Thomas's outbreak by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And here's Philip who's you and I, right, like Thomas was. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. I mean, that's, what a slap on the, on the cheek. If you just show me the Father, that'll be enough. Jesus is like, I haven't done enough already. I'm not about to do enough. So what does Jesus say gently? Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? And what he is, reali- what he is revealing is this. His presence, when you're in the presence of Jesus, you are in the presence of heaven. You are now in the courts that David longed to be with. David was physically separated and longed to be in the house of God. Right? He was physically separated. We are not separated. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and we actually have access to the throne of God in Christ. He goes on to say this, Jesus does, in verse 15. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Do you love Jesus? I mean, do you hear his love towards you? Can we proclaim with David the beauty, the confidence that, that we long to be in his courts and long to, to spend eternity with him? And what I love about Psalm 27 is David is saying that this is something he longs for all the days of his life, and yet he will never be separated from warfare as long as he lives, until he dies. And yet he can say, I dwelt in the courts of the Lord all the days of my life. Is that your number one longing? Or are you, in, are you finding yourself stuck because you can't see it like Philip? You can't see it like Thomas. I do. I'm stuck there. So here's my encouragement, practically. Let's actually start confessing before the Lord our fears, the things that scare us. The very, the, even if it's something like, Lord, I'm kind of bored. Right? You know why you're bored? Because the newest technology, the new iOS came out, and that's far more exciting, right? Because it's somehow meeting some problem you think you have, and Jesus isn't meeting it because you have not rightly seen the brokenness inside. And when I see my sin, it, it scares me. Do you get scared about that? Addictions, thoughts that cross your mind, fears of finances, 
fears of, um, I mean, just one person doesn't look at you the right way and it ruins your day. Has that ever happened to you? Like, are they mad at me? Like, it just unravels you. We are building up many sources of life. And going back to Curly's point, it's about one thing. And my, my plea for all of us this Advent season is that we would begin to pray, Lord Jesus, let our hearts long, our affections long to dwell in your courts all the days of our life. Show us what that would even look like. Free us to begin to even live where we can confess to one another our sins and you, Lord, and that we can actually have that longing be our goal with David. How amazing would your life look if you could say, I am not afraid of anything? Like, how good would you be? Like, I think we could all become professional athletes because we would have no fear, right? We could all do any of our callings infinitely better because fear is removed. And that is the promise God has given you in Christ. That you have total confidence that you are in Christ, the already, so that you can face the not yet through prayer, through repentance, and through faith. Let's pray. Lord, we know this scripture um, where Jesus, you tell us you will not leave us like orphans. And like David has taught us in Psalm 27, we can have total confidence in the work that you have done. That all of our enemies have been vanquished. All of the fears, all of the sources of of stress and fear and um, just torment are removed. But Lord, I pray that we would actually throw our hearts onto you. In chapter 15 of John, you tell us, Jesus, that you are the vine and we are the branch, and we are to abide in you. We are to find ourselves completely in your tent, on your rock. And I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning, that would be a reality for us. Maybe even for the first time for some of us. That our record of rights, our record of wrongs, do not define us, only you. I pray we would dwell in that place. I pray as we move toward communion and this meal together, that we'd be more convinced than we've ever been of our union with you, Jesus. That you are our identity. And if that is not true of anyone in this room, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes to cry out to you, even this morning, even this day, to believe for the first time. Amen.